Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ethan Besser-Frederick, a host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Professor Bonar Hernandez-Sandoval about his new book, Guatemala's Catholic Revolution, A History of Religious and Social Reform, 1920-1968. to Professor Hernandez, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Ethan. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about uh, my book and talk about the history of uh... Catholicism in Guatemala. I, I feel like your book is a list of keywords of terms that I love to talk about and read about. So it, it was a very easy choice for me to, to select your book. I'm excited to talk about it. Well, thank you. I'm also excited, very excited about it, to, to talk about it. Uh, before we get into your book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write the book? Yeah, so um, my name is, uh, as you as you mentioned, my name is Bonar Hernandez Sandoval. I am I was born in Guatemala, and I um, came to the United States uh, relatively young um, and decided during the course of my college education to become a historian. Uh, It's something that I discovered uh, about historical research that uh, really interested me, me, especially because I wanted to find, uh, uh, many years ago, I wanted to find the reasons why so many people from Central America had come to the United States. And so that eventually led me into the, um, to the path to, to, to graduate school. And I went to the University of Texas, uh, where I got my PhD in Latin American history. Uh, since uh, getting my degree, I've been working, and actually before, uh, during my graduate school education, I've been working on the history of Catholicism in Guatemala. And, and uh, the main sort of question that has interested me or one of the main questions that has interested me for many years has been sort of why is it that individuals uh, um, decide um, to um, to enter the political sphere and how a religion informs their political uh, their political activism or their social activism uh, that that question eventually led me into this project. Uh, began this project as a, this book began as a, as a PhD dissertation a number of years ago, uh, and um, the the book or the dissertation. Uh, so let me let me talk a little bit about how just briefly how the dissertation came out and how the book also was eventually uh, eventually published. Um, uh, Originally, I wanted to write a history about um, a, a general history about the Catholic Church uh, during the 20th century in Guatemala, and, and I was mostly interested in writing a, a history about the institution. Uh, so I was um, it originally um, I wanted to to use mostly sort of what we might call institutional sources, so sources that are produced by the Catholic Church, um, and. But when I started to do the research for the book, I discovered that the main archive of the Catholic Church in Guatemala was 
was going a process of renovation and reorganization. So it was unfortunately closed to all researchers. So I had to find uh, find uh, sources. So I I've, um, I scrambled for a few weeks and tried to look for different sources, and that eventually led me to to, to sort of an, an sort of an uncharted path in terms of historical research research for for uh, for the history of Catholicism in Guatemala. I eventually discovered that there were newly newly available sources at the Vatican at the Vatican archive. Uh, that related to Guatemala and the relationship between the Vatican and the, and the Guatemalan Catholic Church and the Guatemalan state. Eventually, I also discovered uh, through a process of uh, of interviews that I did for the dissertation uh, that uh, there were um, uh, local sources. They were particular to the church, but and these sources were mostly in 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 um, in um, in a number of parishes that were that are located in the western part of the country. And so it, sort of the book uh, kind of emerged as this, uh, a, or it began as this attempt to, to write an institutional history of the church during the 20th century. But eventually the book, or the, the dissertation, uh, uh, and eventually the book turned to be sort of a, more of a, a sort of a history of the church, uh, partly uh, sort of a history from above, what we might call a history of the institution, but also a history from below. So I became interested in the process of finding new sources in trying to in trying to see how sort of uh, local parishioners, and in this case, indigenous Maya uh, Catholics, uh, how they also uh, uh, participated into the different projects of reform of the church. Uh, and uh, when I started to do additional research for the book, I continued to, uh, along these same lines, and so I continued to kind of do research that was particular to to sort of the institution per se, so so more institutional sources, but also sort of a more uh, bottom-up sources uh, uh, that were that were kind of related to sort of how Catholicism evolved at the local at the local level. What a wonderful example of how archives build our histories for us sometimes, what, or reconstruct them, I guess, in your case, with the, uh, with the redevelopment going on. Yes, um, yes, exactly. And one of the things that uh, this is uh, something that uh, I think is important for all of us who, who do research on, on, uh, on, on topics in, in countries that uh, whose archival institutions uh, sometimes tend to be a little bit complicated uh, in terms of uh, access to sources, and some sources are not organized. Uh, uh, the historian has to be very creative uh, and, and be flexible and be willing to change uh, the questions that uh, the historian is asking. And so this project, uh, over the years when I was working on it, uh, taught me those those issues. So you put together this very local and very transnational history, which I found very interesting. And to, to start with your introduction, you make a very compelling argument that the Guatemalan Catholic Church, or at least the sort of missionary activities that I think many Latin American at least are familiar with of viewing the church as a as a agent of social change, or at least of activism and, and progressive reform in the country during that time period, that that change actually predates Vatican II and goes much earlier in the 20th century, which you date. So could you briefly introduce us to this thesis and this timeline that you would like to update with Guatemala's Catholic Revolution? Uh, yes. 
Yeah, so um, when I was talking about some, uh, sort of the reason why this topic interest, interested me, I, I was originally intrigued by the fact that um, the Catholic Church, in the case of Guatemala, but we can also talk about other countries um, in Latin America. Of course, there are um, differences in each country, but but the Catholic Church in Guatemala, um, uh, at least at, at the institutional level, was a very conservative institution. It was uh, uh, the leaders of the Catholic Church in the mid middle early part of the 20th century, and, and actually um, um, in the second part of the 20th century at the institutional level, they, they put forward a very conservative, uh, politically speaking, anti-communist kind of discourse. And that became very clear in 1954 when um, the, the U.S. government um, um, sort of organized uh, a military coup against uh, the president of Guatemala, Jacob Arbenz. Uh, the Catholic Church was one of the key actors in the, in the overthrow of Jacob Arbenz. The Catholic Church, the Catholic leaders uh, supported the overthrow of Jacob Arbenz in 1954. And so, um, so you have an institution that was, uh, uh, politically speaking, put forward an anti-communist discourse, was very conservative. Like the, the Catholic leader at the time, Mariano Rosella Rellano, was um, was very much uh, against uh, sort of any types of uh, kind of social reform, uh, which he equated with uh, communism. But then uh, by the 1960s and 1970s, and this is a different um, uh, time period from, from what I uh, cover in the book, but 1960s, 1970s, at least at the local level, but also at the institutional level, you see this uh, change to what we call progressive Catholicism. So I was I was interested in trying to kind of understand why that shift happened. And over the course of doing the research for the book, and especially when looking at, um, at uh, what happens in the Western part of the country, where um, you have a number of foreign missionaries who establish uh, uh, mission territories in the middle of the 20th century, when I when I started to study what, what happened in these mission territories, I discovered that um, many of the projects, but also uh, the language that we tend to associate with progressive Catholicism and eventually liberation theology, uh, which becomes sort of a central aspect of the Catholic Church in Guatemala, but elsewhere in Latin America, sort of this more kind of uh, socially engaged and politically active kind of uh, um, sort of um, uh, stance that many Catholics take, liberation theology. Um, when, I, when I started looking at this, kind of how these kind of mission territories evolve and sort of the dynamics of sort of Catholicism and how individuals, especially Maya indigenous peoples, interacted with the, with the institution, with the Catholic Church, I discovered that there were these projects and language uh, that was evolving in the 1950s and, and even even before Vatican II in the 1960s, uh, and so that what we see with Vatican II is that uh, sort of the one of the sort of crucial aspects of this project that I think uh, um, I think is, is is very important is that uh, is that Vatican II uh, of course is very important and uh, uh, what happens in 1968 uh, with the meeting of the Latin American bishops in Medellin, Colombia is also very important. It has very important consequences for all of Latin America. But, but Vatican II uh, 
serves to reinforce some of the um, some of the sort of projects and the language that is already happening on the ground. There is already this kind of a social project, if you will, happening in 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 the countryside in Guatemala, in the western part of the country, in the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties. So, with this argument, what I hope to to um, to contribute to the um, to the to the historical uh, to historical research on the topic is that I want to to uh, to uh, to um, kind of uh, encourage us to kind of think about how uh, even though the Catholic Church is this transnational kind of international kind of global institution and how it is undeniable that global developments affect the Catholic Church in Guatemala and elsewhere in Latin America. But it is important to kind of uh, to look at what is happening sort of uh, on the ground, if you will, and how there is this constant dialogue between what happens on the ground and what happens uh, globally. So that's sort of one one I think um, important aspect of this of this book. Well, I very much loved the combination of very hyper local uh, history that you do at the at the village level of relationships within communities. Uh, while also simultaneously keeping that large global transformation in mind that, that you describe. I think that the book does that expertly, and anybody who's interested in that sort of history of Catholicism or really of any country in Latin America would really benefit from reading this. Yes, yes, uh, and uh, thank you for saying that. And I, I should say here that uh, it's also a kind of the project, this project, this book, and the dissertation also, and uh, uh, the book eventually, um, it is a product of um, of 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 sort of uh, the fact that archives and sources, different sources, are now available. Um, for example, at the Vatican archives, um, those uh, those sources that I use in the early part of the book that uh, I think uh, we we are going to be discussing kind of the first part of the book, but. Those sources uh, became available just as I was starting to write or to do research on the dissertation, and so, and so, uh, a project of this nature was possible um, in part because I was I had access to to the sources that I eventually used. Uh, and I, I think that that's a great illustration of these transnational and local histories being being already there. We as historians just have to have our eyes open to them and being willing to look in these uh, sometimes smaller archives that are a little bit less convenient. Although certainly you, you had to out of necessity as well. Exactly, exactly. Now the, the book itself, once past the introduction, is split into three parts, each part containing two chapters. Your first part, named Foundations, begins with your very first chapter, Papal Power and Church-State Relations. And this this uh, begins the book with the very nadir, or at least it seems like an, a low point of church-state relations in the early 20th century. So could you briefly explain a little bit how the church in Guatemala had gotten to such a low point in its influence and relationship with the state? And then what begins to change in the 1920s that that serves this as a good bookend for the beginning of the book? Yeah, so, so, the, so the Catholic Church in Guatemala... Um, um, going back to the colonial period, as in other parts of Latin America, had um, a very significant influence over sort of political and social social matters. Um, it was definitely one of the, if not the most important institution uh, in the lives of most Guatemalans, especially in the countryside, but also in the in the urban areas. Then um, uh, independence happens, and there is this. Uh, 
sort of a very sort of a political, uh, but also a open sort of a conflict between the conservatives and the liberals. Uh, so those these two groups, political groups that emerge after independence, uh, um, liberals and conservatives, uh, and and sort of the 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 conflict sort of tends to to a uh, color and influence um, most of political political life in Guatemala during the 19th century. Liberals, uh, Guatemalan liberals, want to um, subordinate the Catholic Church to the power of the state. Conservatives want to um, they want to retain. Uh, at least in a modified way, the influence, the social and political influence of the Catholic Church, which which they see as a as a source of harmony and stability for the new nation in the 19th century. And, and then, and so so this conflict uh, this conflict tends to kind of influence political life uh, uh, very significantly in the 19th century. In the in the 1870s, liberals, uh, Guatemalan liberals, finally. Uh, are able to hold on to power and they are going to, to to control the state until the middle of the 20th century. In the 1870s, Guatemalan liberals began to uh, undo the social and political power of the Catholic Church. They do so through a series of uh, reforms, uh, anti-clerical reforms, uh, which means that uh, Guatemalan liberals, for example, um, they send the leader of the Catholic Church into exile in the 1870s. This is going to happen with other Catholic leaders uh, in the years that follow. Um, that, that these Catholic leaders, some of them are going to find themselves in exile for a number of years. Uh, they also, uh, Guatemala liberals also um, 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 force a, a, a foreign, foreign priests to, to leave the country. Um, a number of seminaries uh, or a number of uh, convents that these convents are closed uh, and, the pro- and, and this is very important uh, the properties of the Catholic Church are expropriated the state takes over those properties and that means that the Catholic Church is left without its economic clout uh, and it, it is also left without um, uh, the priest that uh, it needs to, to be a social force throughout the country. So by the beginning of the 20th century, there is an institution which I describe in the first um, in the first chapter of the book, um, an institution that is a very weak institution. There are very few priests um, in the country, especially in the countryside. In the countryside, there are parishes that remain without a priest for, for years, and then parishioners they see a priest only when there is a festival, a local festival, and when, or when, the, when there is a very special occasion. And the church also doesn't doesn't have sort of the economic resources to uh, to um, to be a social to be a social force. It doesn't have the, the the wealth that it had had during the colonial period, in the early part of the independence uh, period. So this this church is the church that uh, that I find that I found uh, when doing um, when when reading the sources for the early part of the 20th century. This is the source that I that that I that I, that I encounter at, in the early part of the 20th century. And this is the this is the church that Vatican officials who are going to become very prominent in Guatemalan affairs in the 1920s and 1930s uh, and thereafter. 
this is the church that they encounter. Um, it is a weak institution. Um, and Catholic leaders at the time, they, they, they are very much aware of that. Uh, Guatemalan Catholic leaders, uh, they are very much aware of that. And so as a consequence of that, what we see in the 1920s, uh, beginning in the 1920s, uh, but this becomes really evident in the 1930s and 1940s, uh, is that Catholic leaders, Guatemalan Catholic leaders, together with uh, representatives from the Vatican, they begin to uh, sort of uh, implement a series of reforms that are intended to take the church out of this kind of uh, weak position. Uh, and one one important piece of that uh, project is to bring in foreign missionaries. The political context in Guatemala changes by the 1930s. Uh, Guatemalan liberals become less interested in in um, uh, sort of diminishing the power of the Catholic Church because, after all, the power of the Catholic Church had been virtually destroyed in the late 19th century. But Guatemalan liberals. Um, uh, are also uh, are, are in the 1920s and 1930s are more interested in in getting uh, the support of the Catholic Church politically, and so there is this agreement, this is an unwritten agreement between Catholic leaders and Vatican officials on the one hand and and Guatemalan liberals on the other hand. Uh, they 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 agree that uh, liberals. Uh, uh, Agreed that uh, they will allow the Catholic Church and Vatican officials to to uh, to bring in foreign missionaries into the country, and and in change for that, uh, Catholic leaders and Vatican officials they tend to be uh, supportive of uh, the Guatemalan government, which is controlled by liberals. Uh, so this unwritten agreement allows the Catholic Church uh, in Guatemala. So when I talk about the Catholic Church in Guatemala in this period, I'm talking about. Uh, uh, Guatemalan uh, priests, uh, Guatemalan Catholic leaders, but also Vatican officials. This this agreement allows the Catholic Church to uh, begin a series of reforms, uh, which include uh, bringing foreign missionaries, but also allows allows the Catholic Church to 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 uh, revive the the semin the, the national seminary, which 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 is where Catholic priests were trained, Guatemalan Catholic priests were trained, and then there are other reforms that are going to become important in the middle of the 20th century. For example, the creation of a number of lay Catholic institutions uh, that are going to become very prominent in the Guatemalan countryside. But but uh, what happens in Guatemala in the 1920s and 1930s is a story, is a very important story about how. Um, there is this shift when it comes to uh, church-state relations. Uh, there is a shift that allows um, the Catholic Church to begin to implement a series of reforms that allow it to, 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 to get out of its weakened position. But there is also a story of uh, how the Vatican begins to gradually um, uh, exert uh, increasing influence over the life of the Catholic Church in Guatemala and also, it has it has a great deal of influence when it comes to relations between between the Catholic Church, uh, the Guatemalan Catholic Church, and the Guatemalan state. So there is a story of how sort of uh, the Catholic Church in Guatemala. It is evident that that it is tied to these kind of more global developments that are happening elsewhere in the world. For example, the Vatican is very much. Uh, politically involved uh, in European politics at the time. That's a 
That's a topic that I address uh, a little bit in the book. But this is what happens in Guatemala. The Vatican is very much interested in, in getting the church to become a social and political force again. I think that uh, many of us are familiar with stories of the church losing many of its colonial powers and privileges, but you do such a great job of illustrating what that looks like on the ground. One of the uh, examples that jumps out to me is when you cite one Vatican estimate that there were only 80 Catholic priests in a country of almost two and a half million people. And it really illustrates how on the ground level, the church had such little influence compared to what you later describe in the book, which is such a high level of engagement between priests and and many people, especially in the highlands. Um, so I, I think that this chapter does a great job of describing the, the lack of church social influence in people's everyday lives. Exactly. And, 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 and it also kind of speaks to, there is a, there is a different, there is another story here um, that institutionally the Catholic Church is very weak, but that doesn't mean that a Catholic culture uh, uh, has ceased to exist. And in fact, what happens is that there is this uh, increasing gulf, for instance, um, during this period between sort of the institution and the, the practices uh, uh, and the doctrine of the institution and what uh, Guatemalans, especially in the highlands, are doing, what indigenous peoples are doing, especially when they when they practice their Catholicism. There is a big difference, and this is going to become a crucial issue as the foreign missionaries, foreign missionaries begin to arrive in the western part of the country. And, and yes, it certainly is a theme in the book that... Uh even if Catholicism doesn't just stop because there's no priest there. And in fact, uh, Catholicism in the highlands uh, can look very different than it does in the rest of the country. Exactly. Your second chapter in this first part, the Romanized church, uh, further develops what you've, what you've already talked about here of the Vatican becoming more involved in the management of these national level churches to build up their social and, and economic powers. And I want to point to one argument you make in particular on page 42, uh, that the Romanization of the Guatemalan church took the form of two major strategies. First, inviting foreign priests into the country. And second, training a new cohort of domestic lay leaders. So could you tell us why these two strategies were chosen and how they played out in the country? They are chosen by... um... Um, by Catholic leaders at the time, because eventually, kind of the initial uh, in the 1920s and in in 1930s as well, the um, one initial kind of uh, emphasis or goal of Catholic leaders is to train uh, Guatemalan priests. That's that's what, uh, especially the leaders of the Catholic Church in Guatemala, um, that's what they want to do, uh, and this is in part because uh, there is a very nationalist kind of. Uh, sentiment among the, the the priests in Guatemala and, and sort of the leaders of the Catholic Church more generally. But then uh, what happens is that uh, there are very few priests uh, in the 1930s and the resources for the National Seminary, seminary are, are scarce. And so uh, the Vatican begins to, uh, sort of what I discovered in the correspondence between Vatican officials which is a very rich kind of uh, set of documents that I found at the Vatican archives in Vatican City. Uh, so the correspondence between Vatican officials and Guatemalan leaders uh, 
tends to focus on on the on the fact that uh, according to Vatican officials, uh, the sem- national seminary will not produce enough priests to to um, to to staff the the parishes in the countryside, uh, and so. The Vatican officials began to make the argument that it is important to bring in foreign missionaries, foreign missionaries, um, in order to uh, eventually produce a new generation of Catholic priests, uh, Guatemalan Catholic priests. And so, there is a lo- this is a long-term project that Vatican officials foresee in the 1930s. The idea is that foreign missionaries will uh, will allow the church to recover its, its social and, and in, in religious position in the countryside, and that eventually will produce, will lead uh, young people to to enter the national seminary. So that's that's one one emphasis. But then there is also the 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 objective by by Vatican officials to to uh, uh, to uh, allow the church to once again to recover its uh, social uh, position in the countryside. Um, and so Vatican officials began to make the argument that it is necessary to bring foreign missionaries. But Vatican officials, and this is, also, this is, a, this is a, a, an argument that is shared by Catholic, Guatemalan Catholic leaders at the time, especially the Archbishop of Guatemala at the time, um, Ar, uh, Mariano Rosela Arellano, uh, who begins his tenure in 1939. And he will he oversees a lot of these uh, reforms. Uh, he dies in the early 1960s, so he's a very crucial figure. He's 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 the main figure, Catholic figure, who who supports the overthrow of Jacob Arbenz in 1954. This uh, U.S. overthrow of the Guatemalan government in 1954. Uh, but so uh, uh, Rosella Arellano uh, uh, and Vatican officials agree that it's also important that it is also important to involve the Catholic laity into into the institutional life of the church. So. So they believe that uh, sort of a, a step, a, a, a very important step for kind of restoring the influence of Catholicism in Guatemala, especially in the countryside, is to integrate the Catholic laity into the into the life, into the structures, into the uh, rhythms of uh, the Catholic Church. Uh, and so, uh, so these two kind of these two projects eventually. I eventually become become the centerpiece of the of the program of reform that Catholic leaders and, and Vatican officials are going to support in the 1930s and thereafter, uh, and they become kind of the foundation in many ways of uh, of the Catholic Church that we see in the 1950s and 1960s and thereafter. Uh, actually, uh, sort of the influence of foreign missionaries continued to be very important in the 1960s and even in the 1970s. And, and Catholic uh, Guatemalan Catholics, the laity, uh, definitely become a more central aspect of the church uh, in the second part of the 20th century. Now, one of the most enjoyable parts of this chapter for me was the resistance by some priests in Guatemala, especially Guatemalan priests, meaning the, originally from the country, to this uh, what, what you term Romanization. Uh, especially of the influence and perceived importance that foreign priests had in the country. So could you tell us a little bit about Guatemalan priests sometimes not being on board with this, uh, with these reforms? Yes, there is, as I, as I briefly mentioned before, there is a story here of uh, this kind of nationalist uh, uh, posture 
that many Catholic priests, Guatemalan Catholic priests uh, take, um, there is definitely conflict. Uh, the, the Archbishop Mariano Rosell and many priests in Guatemala, they oppose the, the arrival of foreign missionaries. And the reason that they oppose it is because um, many of these Catholic priests and even the Archbishop, they lose considerable influence over the life of the Catholic Church when foreign missionaries arrive, especially in here, uh, I should mention that uh, uh, so the main uh, group of foreign missionaries that I, that I, that I study in the, in the book is uh, the Catholic Foreign Mission Society of America, better known as Merinol. Um, a Catholic priest in Guatemala, they, they, they lose considerable influence over the life of the church and over the direction of the church when Merinol and other foreign missionaries arrive. So kind of at the heart of this uh, conflict is, is, a, is, is the issue of power. Uh, that's one, one, one so kind of to put it bluntly, that's one, one of the main uh, uh, factors that is driving this kind of uh, conflict between, between um, Guatemalan priests and, and sort of the foreign missionaries that arrive. And this conflict is going to linger for many years, uh, uh, um, for many years. And so uh, that, is, that doesn't mean that all Guatemalan priests oppose the arrival of foreign missionaries and the influence of the Vatican. Uh, because there is going, there are going to be moments of cooperation and collaboration between Catholic priests and and, and foreign missionaries uh, uh, down the road. But in 1930s and 1940s, uh, Rosel Arellano, Rosel Arellano, in the documents I discovered that he's opposed to the arrival of foreign missionaries, but he recognizes at the same time, uh, he's in many ways, Rosel Arellano and other Guatemalan priests, they are kind of caught in this kind of very difficult position, to put it to put it that way, uh, because they recognize they don't that they don't have priests. Rosel Arellano, in one of his pastoral letters, he complains that he he has he has he has no priests. He says, "I have no priests," and so he recognizes this, and so he decides to go, he decides to go along with this project of uh, bringing in inviting foreign missionaries, especially Merinol from the United States. And that sets us well for the next part of the book, where uh, the church gets to bear a lot of the fruit of this work and in this investment. So in part two, expansion, you begin with uh, the very vigorously named chapter, Resurgent Church. So how was the church resurgent during this time period? So now uh, setting into the late 1930s and the beginning of the 1940s. And how was it able to, or what did it use that influence on? How did it exert its influence when it started to gain it? At this time now, I think also contemporary with the Ubico dictatorship. Yes, yes. And so the church, the resorting, the resorting church of the 1930s and uh, 1940s, uh, it is a ch- or, or early 1940s, uh, it is a church that um, uh, becomes a more public institution. Uh, it becomes a more public institution because uh, um, in this chapter, I focus on mostly on the, on the early tenure of uh, Rosel Arellano, um, and so the church becomes more more a more public institution because Rosel Arellano begins to orchestrate a number of uh, public events, uh, uh, religious congresses, processions, uh, um, and all of the sudden in the 1930s and early 1940s, you see 
the streets of Guatemala City and the streets of uh, other urban centers, and even in the countryside, you see uh, you see the streets filled with Catholics, uh, religious religious events. Uh, uh, once again, are in the public. That's one of the things that Guatemalan liberals had uh, prohibited in the late 19th century, and so the church had become retrenched to uh, to to the inside of the of the of um, the, the church buildings. Um, but now, in the 1930s and early 1940s and thereafter, uh, Rosella Arellano, supported by Vatican officials, they they began to kind of uh, uh, sort of organize these kind of more public events. And so you see this resurgent uh, church in the sense, it is a resurgent church in the sense that uh, once again, you see the church in the streets, uh, Guatemalan Catholics in the streets of Guatemala. Kind of Catholicism becomes a public uh, force or begins to become a public force once again. And now, Rosella Arellano, uh, it's a very interesting, a very important figure, as I said before, because he, um, he along with Vatican officials, uh, they recognize that there is, there is a political opening during the Ubico dictatorship. Ubico, uh, so he's a Guatemalan liberal. Um, uh, uh, the liberals in the 19th century, they tend to espouse this kind of uh, set of political ideals, including political freedom, um, uh, sort of um, sort of ideals that are that are consistent with uh, with uh, 19th century liberalism, but by the early years of the 20th century, um, um, many Guatemalan liberals they become dictators, and this is the case of Jorge Ubico. So Ubico, in order to maintain his dictatorship, he he he, he recognizes the need to to uh, to to reach a, an agreement with the Catholic Church. Uh, that's the agreement that I was talking about before. Ubico wants the support of the Catholic Church. He, Ubico also wants uh, the Catholic Church to remain a, 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 an institution that doesn't get involved in politics. And so Catholic leaders, including Rosella Arellano and Vatican officials, uh, the, the papal nuncio at the time in the 1930s, they, they decide to, to, to go along with what Ubico wants. And so Rosella Arellano recognizes that this is political opening. Vatican officials recognize that Ubico is willing to willing to to, uh, to reach an agreement with the Catholic Church. So Ubico, in exchange for the Catholic Church, not uh, sort of uh, becoming involved in politics and supporting his government, allows uh, Rosella Arellano to orchestrate these public events. Uh, and so, so you see. Uh, Beginning in during beginning in 1930s and late 1930s and early 1940s, you see kind of uh, Catholicism becoming this kind of public public uh, force once again. At the same time, uh, Ubico decides to allow uh, the Catholic leaders to invite foreign missionaries, and so this is when uh, when a number of foreign missionaries began to arrive in Guatemala in the 1930s, but also especially, especially in the early 1940s. Uh, so Merinol begins to arrive in large, increasingly large numbers in the 1940s, uh, but they began to arrive in the early 19, 1940s. That's, that's when the first missionaries began to arrive. And so in the countryside, you see uh, not a lot yet, but you see more priests in the countryside. So this is the resurgent church that I'm describing in, in that chapter. It is a church whose pastors, uh, in this case foreign missionaries, 
are now uh, more visible in the countryside and you have this series of public events, public congresses and religious processions that uh, Guatemala's hadn't seen in many years. Your fourth chapter, Turning to the Countryside, the Missionary Church, moves us back to the very local level of parish interactions and community dynamics with these priests, with this newfound social influence that the church is trying to exert. And you hear, argue here, and I'll quote, that the rise of a missionary church in Huehuetenango exacerbated community divisions and brought to the fore a largely unexplored religious story of priest-parishioner engagement. So could you tell us how this um, renewed Catholic activism and, and missionary work, how did that play out on the community level? Uh, yes. And so uh, here uh, in this chapter, I, what, I, what, I, what I was hoping to, to uncover uh, when I started uh, working on this uh, project, uh, what I, I was hoping to uncover uh, sort of a so the, the more traditional history of conflict between Catholic priests and indigenous Maya peoples that, uh, that tends to, to predominate in, many of the, in, in a lot of the literature on the topic on, uh, uh, for the study of Guatemalan Catholicism, uh, there is a lot of writing that was done uh, by anthropologists who did field work in Guatemala during this period in the 1930s, 1940s, and 1950s. And most of their accounts uh, um, when working in the in the Western Highlands among the, the various Maya communities in the western part of the country, most of their accounts point to a history of conflict between uh, Catholic priests and indigenous uh, indigenous Maya peoples. Uh, and so when I started looking at uh, reading the documents, I was hoping to kind of uh, to, to uncover a little bit more of uh, a little bit uh, more of that history of conflict between the institutional church and indigenous peoples, but then uh, when I started looking at the documents and for this chapter, uh, I realized uh, a great deal deal on foreign foreign mission, uh, missionary accounts. Uh, these are missionary accounts written by the members of Merinol. Um, what I began to uncover was yes, that history of conflict. That appeared in the in the ethnographic work that was done at the time, um, and certainly that history of conflict uh, is uh, cannot be overlooked. Um, there is a there is a very sharp conflict between indigenous peoples uh, who resent the arrival of foreign missionaries who are interested in imposing sort of this more Romanized sacrament-driven version of Catholicism on, on, on indigenous communities. Uh, so certainly that conflict exists, and the conflict become, becomes very serious, and I point in the chapter that uh, it becomes political uh, sometimes. Uh, so the conflict is very real. But then kind of looking at these sources, especially kind of taking a longer kind of perspective, because the book covers a period of about uh, um, uh, 40, uh, about 40, uh, 40 years, uh, um, 40 or so years. Uh, when looking at this, kind of, kind of taking a more kind of, uh, kind of longer perspective of what is happening in Guatemala in 1940s and 1950s, especially in the Western Highlands and particularly in the Department of Huetenango, as you mentioned, is that uh, 
the conflict, the, this conflict, uh, 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 although it exists, it doesn't color, it doesn't affect all the interactions uh, between uh, foreign missionaries, between Merinol and indigenous Maya communities. That is to say that uh, there, is, there, there is something else that is happening. That is that there is a process of accommodation, certainly that process of accommodation between foreign missionaries and indigenous Maya peoples is, is uh, shaped by, by, by a story of conflict. There, there are divisions and there are differences. But then uh, what happens is that uh, there is this process of accommodation whereby foreign missionaries begin to adapt. They have to adapt to the, to the circumstances that, that they encounter in Huehuetenango. Huehuetenango is one of the, or at the time and still is one of the most remote aspects of the uh, regions of the country. Historically speaking, it was a relatively isolated uh, part of the country. Roads were almost non-existent, non-existent in, in, in Huehuetenango and in, in, in large parts of the western part of the country. Um, the, the terrain uh, is very difficult, so there are lots of mountains. That's why it's called the Western Highlands. And so the foreign missionaries, many not had to adapt. They couldn't be present in all parishes at the same time. And when they traveled to different parishes, uh, they, they had to find allies in those parishes. So the members of Marinol began, began to adapt to local circumstances. Uh, they began to, um, eventually, they began to uh, allow certain, certain um, uh, members of certain communities to, to have a great deal or have increasing influence over the, the project of religious reform. And, and, and on the other hand, indigenous peoples, indigenous communities, they realized that they also had to adapt. And this was in large part because these uh, missionaries, especially Merinol, were bringing kind of resources into the communities. So, for example, uh, Merinol began, they began to, in the 1940s, uh, 1950s, they began to provide medicines to indigenous communities. And so they had to interact, that is to say that uh, it was not that uh, that uh, indigenous peoples in Merinol couldn't see each other. Actually, there is a lot of interaction, and that interaction uh, is something that um, that I was very interested in, in 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 uncovering. And in the process of uncovering that interaction, I discovered that that at the local level there was this uh, process of accommodation, accommodation uh, that uh, that uh, was almost inevitable because of the circumstances that Meridol encountered and because indigenous Maya peoples, in some cases, in many cases, they, want to, they wanted to have access to the resources that Meridol were bringing into their communities, including medicine, but other resources as well. Now, there's a lot of striking anecdotes in this chapter, some really great interactions that you've captured here. And I think the one that strikes me is about the... the Almost, I, I think I feel comfortable calling it a very colonial attitude that some of these Mary Nollers bring with them to these to these villages. They think of themselves as a as a second conquistador, as a second wave of missionaries re-Christianizing uh, the the region, and they eventually have to compromise, like you said. And I think it culminates in one of my favorite ceremonies they do. Maybe this is in the later chapter where they invite uh, the indigenous communities to bring in ears of corn to perform um, ceremonies in the church 
there so that way they can at least have it be somewhat in line with Catholic teaching rather than um, being too, as they consider it, pagan. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, Mary Nollers, uh, they, uh, as you mentioned, they arrived in Guatemala uh, sort of very much thinking about uh, kind of uh, what they perceive as kind of restoring kind of the the glory of the Catholic Church. Uh, they talk about kind of the colonial period a great deal in the early documents, and that's something that they want to do. They also arrive uh, with a very co- politically speaking with a very conservative mindset uh, that uh, that uh, that leads them to support sort of a, a an anti-communist discourse. Uh, um, um, and, and it is uh, one of the most, uh, it was one of the most interesting aspects of the book, uh, kind of trying to understand how and why uh, these uh, missionaries began to change their perspective once they, they encounter and they interact with indigenous Maya communities, once they begin to, to kind of uh, work in the, in the western part of the country. Uh, in, in a later chapter, I argued that uh, eventually what happens is that uh, Merinol, uh, members of Merinol, they go a process of conversion themselves. Uh, they are trying to convert indigenous people to 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 a Romanized uh, sacramentary version of Catholicism, and certainly that is going to happen a great deal. And, um, but but Merinol, members of Merinol, they themselves change. And so the change that happens in Guatemala is not only among the Maya, indigenous Maya population and Guatemalans who, many Guatemalans who, who began to kind of practice the sacraments on a more kind of daily basis um, and become more engaged with, with the institutions and the life of the church. But it, also, it is also a story of how foreign missionaries also began to change and that change is going to, I should say, that it's also affected by the fact that there are different generations of Merinolers who arrive in Guatemala. So the early Merinolers, they tend to, as you described, to, to look at the colonial past with certain nostalgia. Uh, but then the younger Merinolers who arrive in the 1950s and 1960s, definitely this is the case, they tend to be more open-minded, if you will. They tend to be more willing to incorporate, as you were describing, uh, certain aspects of uh, Maya religion, certain aspects of costumbre, which is a term given to, to sort of the traditions and uh, the practices of uh, Maya community, the religious practices of Maya communities. Now, this sets us up very well for, your, for the third and final part of the book, Transformations. And I can see that I, I pulled that corn story accidentally from your fifth chapter, the Reformist Church, the story of them doing a religious ceremony with, a, with ears of corn. So could you tell us a little bit in this chapter on the Reformist Church, why did missionaries and the church writ large, uh, but especially these missionaries in the highlands, start to push for more social and economic reforms during this time period, when we've mostly been talking about spiritual reforms to this point? And, and what did these reforms look like on the ground? Yes, so so to the question of why, uh, it, it is both. Uh, it was both an issue of um, um, trying to be practical. Uh, Mary Nollers, uh, I described in in the previous chapter 
that they began to provide medicines to to Maya communities, and that's how some members of Maya communities decide to to support um, the religious project of reform supported by Marinol, Marinol and, and Catholic dealers in Guatemala more, more broadly. Uh, but eventually, uh, Marinol is also began to create uh, a more kind of institutional kind of set of, uh, kind of social projects. So, so the provision of medicines eventually turns into into clinics, into rural clinics, and then eventually Marinol uh, they began to uh, they, they began to establish literacy programs. Uh, they also it is very important. They also began to create um, uh, agricultural and credit cooperatives uh, in various parts of the Western Highlands, especially in in Huehuetenango. And those those projects they begin they tend to begin. Uh, as kind of pragmatic kind of projects, uh, Marinolers uh, want to attract more indigenous peoples into the into the into the buildings, right? And so they provide these resources. They organize certain projects because they want they want more more uh, uh, if you will they more, they want more Romanized Catholics individuals who are practicing the the sacraments, uh, 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 in attending mass on a consistent basis. Uh, and so this is how these projects begin. Uh, that's, that's why they begin, actually. Uh, but then uh, by the 1950s, what you also see is that uh, uh, more broadly, outside of the, the confines of Catholic, the Catholicism in Guatemala, uh, the Guatemalan state and the US government, uh, uh, they, they are supporting uh, programs of development, development kind of, uh, the term development becomes, becomes sort of the, the sort of the main or one of the main aspects driving U.S. policy or some of, one of the main aspects driving U.S. policy toward countries like Guatemala. And the idea is that development, and this becomes even more crucial after the Cuban revolution in 1959, the idea is that programs of development such as cooperatives, uh, uh, health clinics, literacy programs, uh, they will prevent uh, uh, countries in, uh, like Guatemala to to follow the example of Cuba and eventually uh, become a communist country or a socialist country. Um, and so outside of the church, uh, there is a strong support for programs of development eventually uh, when the Alliance for Progress Progress instituted by by the U.S. government during the Kennedy administration. This becomes even more important, and so so many knowledge uh, and the Catholic Church is not immune to these developments. And so what I what I hope to uncover in that last part of the book is how um, many knowledge are acting on a on a kind of pragmatic basis. They are trying to attract more Catholics into the life of the church, but they are also what they are doing is consistent with what is happening more, more globally, uh, at least when it comes to U.S. Latin American relations. That development becomes the, the, um, the one of the central aspects of U.S. policy. And it, it is important not to forget that U.S. Uh, that uh, Marinolers are, are are coming from the United States, and so they are definitely shaped by by these developments. Many of them admire. Um, um, uh, John F. Kennedy, they tend to be very supportive of John F. Kennedy. 
in the in the early 1960s. Now, when these projects are eventually instituted, what I what I what I discovered looking at the missionary reports produced by Merinol, but also by looking at uh, some uh, archival material that I found in parishes in various parishes in Guatemala, is that these projects take a life of their own. Um, uh, they become a, a central aspect of uh, indigenous communities, and they become, in many cases, one of the major ways through which Merinolers in, interact with indigenous peoples and vice versa. And here, there is a, I haven't mentioned this, uh, but uh, there is a very important institution that emerges that is going to be very important for these projects, these social projects and the reformist church to, 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 to emerge and evolve. And this institution is Catholic Action. Catholic Action had been created by Catholic leaders in Guatemala in the 1930s as a way to, to try to restore the, inf- the religious influence of the Catholic Church. Catholic Action was a European uh, institution that eventually made its way to Latin America in Guatemala. It's, uh, the idea was to, uh, as, in, as elsewhere, the idea was to incorporate Guatemalan Catholics into this institution, Catholic Action, and that uh, Catholic Action will become a way for the church to restore its uh, uh, religious and even social influence. And so many knowledge when they arrive in Huehuetenango, they begin to, to establish Catholic Action. That's the way that they try to create a Romanized church and impose a more Roma, uh, sacrament-driven version of, uh, of Catholicism in, in, in Huehuetenango. And so they begin to recruit a lot of indigenous, young indigenous uh, parishioners into, into the ranks of Catholic action. Catholic action becomes very important uh, during the 1950s and 1960s because the, the leaders of Catholic action, the members of Catholic action, they are the ones who are not only teaching the catechism, they are the ones who are not only uh, expanding this kind of Romanized version of Catholicism, but they are the ones who are in many ways in charge of organizing certain social projects such as such as health clinics, literacy programs, and crediting agricultural cooperatives. And so eventually what you see is that uh, the life of many of these indigenous communities in Huehuetenango, it becomes, in, it becomes intrinsically tied to social uh, programs, and eventually these social programs take a life of their own. And eventually the language that emerges with these programs is a language that is not only uh, meant to attract uh, uh, people into, into the church, but it's also a language that, as meritorious began to talk about in 1950s and even early 1960s, it's a language that leads them to, to say that it is important to have these social programs because it will help improve uh, the life of indigenous peoples and and the members of Catholic Action are also making this argument that, that these social programs are important in order to improve the lives of indigenous peoples. This all finally culminates in your sixth and final chapter, The Progressive Church, where you focus in on how, the, the as you said, the, life, the way that these social projects take on a life of their own leads some, um, both of the clergy and these foreign missionaries, but then also obviously indigenous leaders and community members to... Uh, begin to become what you've already termed progressive uh, Catholics, or what you also say in this chapter you could maybe call revolutionary Catholics. So can you explain this development 
and uh, its significance for later Guatemalan history. Uh, yes. So, so this chapter in many ways serves as a, a the story that you tell the chapter that it serves as a as a good uh, indication of what is going to to happen later uh, in the 1970s in Guatemala. Um, uh, by the 1960s, uh, uh, the Reformist Church uh, actually uh, continues to expand. Uh, this Reformist Church that I described uh, in the earlier chapter, in the in chapter four and chapter five, uh, it continues to evolve. Uh, so the emphasis becomes not only on religious reform, sort of uh, expanding the Romanized Church. But the emphasis continues to be in the 1960s on, on sort of creating kind of the social uh, uh, conditions so that indigenous peoples will have um, an improved uh, standard of life, uh, which, according to Merinol, uh, can be done by providing medicines, by teaching people how to write and read, and by uh, uh, Getting people uh, access to uh, to credit and, and and new agricultural techniques such as fertilizers, uh, which become become kind of increasingly widely available in the Guatemalan countryside in the 1960s and thereafter. Uh, but so so the Reformist Church continues to grow in the 1960s when Vatican II is going to happen. Vatican II happens between uh, the Second Vatican Council or Vatican II happens between 1962 and 1965. But so this reformist church continues to have, continues to exist and the push to, to, uh, to expand uh, a sacrament uh, influence version of Catholicism continues to exist. But what happens in the 1960s especially, it is already happening in the late 1950s is, as I was mentioning before, is that Merinol began to talk about um, having, for example, a credit in agricultural cooperatives, not for not just for, for the sake of uh, attracting people into the church, but because they recognize that, that, uh, that these projects in themselves are important. Uh, and by the early 1960s, what you see is this younger generation of Merinol who arrived in Guatemala, uh, who are who tend to be kind of very optimistic about 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 the future, about the prospects of the future uh, in the early 1960s, um, uh, uh, but also many members of Catholic Action, indigenous peoples who become leaders of the Catholic Action movement in the western part of the country. These are kind of relatively young people, um, um, uh, people in their 20s and, and 30s. Um, they tend to have a very optimistic version of uh, of uh, kind of life in Guatemala or vision of life in Guatemala, but uh, many of these individuals, uh, Merinol and, 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 and members of Catholic Action, they began to talk about not only about uh, uh, having these kind of social programs, but also uh, creating uh, sort of the broader conditions for um, for having a sort of a, a higher standard, a better standard of living in the countryside. So, so there is talk about kind of reforming the environment. Uh, the idea is that 
it is not only enough, it is not enough to just uh, give people medicines, but it is important to actually create a condition so that indigenous peoples can have a better standard of living. And so there is a story here in the early 1960s of how at the local level, uh, the members of the Catholic Church, uh, including foreign missionaries and uh, members of Catholic Action, how they are already talking about uh, about uh, uh, kind of social reform, uh, not just for for the sake of uh, 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 of religious reform, but social reform as a very important aspect of of. Uh, of, of the Catholic, or what the Catholic Church is doing in Guatemala. Um, and here, there is also a story in this uh, chapter. I, I was hoping to uncover this after analyzing the documents, the missionary reports um, that, I, that, I, that I had access to. Uh, there, is a, there is a story of uh, how uh, sort of medical and the members of Catholic Action go through a process of conversion themselves. Uh, conversion uh, that leads them to, to recognize that uh, it is important to incorporate certain aspects of Maya religion into, into their version of, uh, of Catholicism. Uh, and so, uh, so the emphasis becomes less and less on imposing and, and, and more and more on kind of listening and, and, and adapting and, and, and sort of... Uh, incorporating certain aspects of Maya religion into into uh, into the into the life of the of the local church. Uh, there is also a, a story here of how uh, in the 1960s what you see is the creation of a new class of, of Catholic leaders uh, not only as it is at the institutional level but among the members of Maya communities and this is going to become a very important story for what comes next in Guatemala in the 1970s and 1980s that many of these um, many of members, many members of Catholic Action that are trained by Merinoles in the 1950s and 1960s, they are going to um, they, they are going to become very important in that period in the 1950s and 1960s, but there are also many of them are going to become very important in the 1970s. And so perhaps one of the most important legacies of these progress programs of reform religious and social reform that Merinol and the Catholic Church more broadly supports is that uh, these programs say they set a foundation for the creation of local leaders among Maya communities. And that's sort of a story that uh, is going to become very important later on. Uh, certainly. I, I just finished teaching a class uh, in which Rigoberto was one of the assigned texts. And so it was very fun to go from that book to this book and immediately see the the connections and and how clearly your thesis is demonstrated by the end that many of the features of Catholicism and progressive Catholicism and liberation theology that uh, Guatemala is already known for begin very early. It's it's an excellent book. We uh, have come to the end of the book itself, but we uh, didn't get to talk about everything that's interesting in it. Uh, like he, like uh, the professor has hinted here, the book also explores U.S. and uh, U.S. interest in the Cold War the use of media and introduction of media, as well as developmentalist economic theory. There's a number of interesting points in this book. Uh, and thank you so much for sharing it with us. But before we go, Professor, could you tell us what you are working on now or what you'll be working in the future? What can we look forward to? Uh, sure. So at the moment, I am 
uh, working on uh, what we might call or what I would I, I envision as a, as a, um, kind of a second part to this project. Um, so I'm working on a project that is specific to the 1970s and 1980s during the most violent years of the Guatemalan Civil War, which lasted from 1960 to 1996. But the, the, there is uh, the 1970s, especially 19, early, late 1970s and early 1980s are characterized by a great deal of violence, state-sponsored violence especially. Uh, and so, uh, so this project, in this project, I'm... Um, I'm basically essentially kind of tracing the, these uh, networks of activism that emerged in the 1950s and 1960s among the members of Catholic Action and among other groups uh, within the Catholic Church and how those networks of activism evolved in the 1970s and 1980s. And so you mentioned the case of Ricoberta Menchu. And so... Um, Rigoberta Menchu and her father, uh, Vicente Menchu, uh, they, uh, they come from Catholic Action. Uh, they, are, they, they are part of the Catholic Action movement in the 1960s. Her father is in the 1970s, and Rigoberta Menchu eventually joins it uh, later on. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking at how uh, some of the leaders that come out of Catholic Action, how they become increasingly politically politically active in the 1970s and early 1980s, and how the violence that is going to happen uh, during this period is going to shape their activism. And so here in this, this kind of follow-up project, if you will, um, uh, exploring the connection between political and religious activism more, more specifically. And, and so I am sort of addressing uh, one of the questions that I'm addressing is why is it that certain a number of Catholics during the 1970s and 1980s, uh, Catholics who, who come out of Catholic action and are influenced by liberation theology, why is it that they, they, that they decide to become politically active and in some cases they decide to become revolutionaries? So that's kind of the main question that I'm trying to explore in this second project. Uh, I am beginning to work on another project that is actually related to the first part of the book uh, that is uh, uh, that I hope to be uh, the hope that turns out to be this history uh, history between the Vatican uh, uh, and, and the Guatemala Catholic Church uh, during the 1950s and 1960s especially during the years of the Second Vatican Council. I'm interested in exploring sort of not only the influence of the Vatican in Guatemala, but also how um, uh, the Guatemalan Catholic Church is actually going to to influence uh, some of the developments that are going to happen uh, during the Second Vatican Council, especially with Catholic action. Catholic action and the integration of the, of the late into the life of the church becomes a very important aspect of the Second Vatican Council, or what is concluded at this, uh, during the Second Vatican Council. And so I'm, I'm I'm hoping to shed light on how Catholic leaders influence uh, sort of the conclusions in terms of uh, the integration of the Catholic, Catholic laity into the life of the church uh, in the context of, uh, of the Second Vatican Council. Well, both of those projects sound incredibly interesting. You will certainly need to keep me informed as you're working on them. As they, Once they're published, I would love to have you back on the channel to discuss them. Sure, sure. And thank you. Thank you so much for your time today and for your excellent book, Guatemala's Catholic Revolution. 
Well, thank you for having me, Ethan, and and I hope that uh, that we can continue the conversation uh, later on on the topic.